people are going to be writing about us for the rest of our lives probably, and after we're dead. So I intend to either confuse the issue so much they never knew what was going on, or to try and keep shoving out bits and bits. So as whoever is bothered to be looking at it in the future, the people that really know will sort out, you know, they'll know what was going on a bit. There's a lot of books about the Beatles and a lot of theories, and I try not to read them. And whenever I do, the first thing is like, oh, that's wrong. Everywhere you go, trying to find out any little bit of dirt that they can write about you. Beatles is Beatles, that Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what people say. You can't live all your life by what they want. Another Kind of Mind. A different kind of Beatles podcast by Another Kind of Mind. Welcome to Another Kind of Mind, a different kind of Beatles podcast. I'm Phoebe. And I'm Daphne. And this is Pizza and Fairy Tales, a four-part series on Lennon-McCartney in the 1970s. Although the Beatles are effectively broken up by 1970, Lennon and McCartney spend the next decade proving they are anything but disengaged from one another. The magnetic push and pull between these two friends keeps them orbiting each other. Sometimes smoothly, sometimes not. Despite some rocky moments, there is an enduring desire for reunion on both sides, with John and Paul each trying to feel their way toward a mutually agreeable new kind of partnership. They continually communicate to each other through song, just as they have done since the very beginning of their relationship. Their songs give voice to feelings of regret, anger, and anguish, as well as yearning hope, reassurance, and love. In this series, we've dug deep to uncover what happened between them, what happened around them, and why they were ultimately unable to reunite. We've fully committed to this story, we've pulled no punches, and we'll be explicit when and where we need to be. The result is an extraordinary story, part tragedy, part comedy of errors, always engrossing, and at times, absolutely explosive. We invite you to join us and encourage you to listen all the way through to feel the full impact of this fresh and revelatory telling of the Lennon-McCartney story. This is Pizza and Fairy Tales. When we think about John and Paul in the 70s, there are three intriguing events between 74 and 77 that really stand out and beg a lot of questions about the relationship. First, why did Paul agree to play matchmaker for John and Yoko in 1974? Second, in 1975, why did John suddenly change his plan to visit Paul in New Orleans during Wings recording sessions for Venus and Mars? And third, when and why did the relationship cool again to the point that John and Paul stopped seeing each other, if in fact they did? We'll tackle all of these questions by detailing and analyzing, to the best of our ability, John and Paul's movements, mindsets, and the influences of the other people and events in their lives. We'll begin with the long-distance reconciliation of John and Paul in 1972 and 73, 
then move on to 1974 and the 18-month separation of John and Yoko. This story fundamentally is about the rupture of a marriage within the attempted reconciliation of another marriage. So while John and Paul are trying to repair their relationship, John and Yoko are simultaneously renegotiating theirs. We'll examine the role Yoko plays in the former and the role Paul plays in the latter. This is a complicated situation and has been notoriously difficult to unravel for lots of reasons. The major players often have competing agendas, which can admittedly make it hard for us to suss out what is being said authentically versus what is said for PR or posterity. Additionally, this era is filled with lots of distractions, many famous names and numerous legendary tales of wild and drunken debauchery. <laughs> like the infamous Kotex on the head. A fantastic example. Yes. <laughs> anyway, stories like these can easily steal the focus from John and Paul. Plus, just like every other single aspect of Beatles history, we have the complicating factor of a generation of writers and commentators whose personal interpretations have dominated the conversation from the beginning and have been handed down as received wisdom ever since. And that is a big problem. Amen. <laughs> Our goal is to set all that aside, clear up some common misconceptions, and offer a fresh perspective. There's some highly pertinent information that doesn't usually get factored into the narrative, which we will share along with our own analysis of the source material. Pizza and fairy tales will cover, among other things, the dramatic final legal dissolution of the Beatles, John and Paul's planned but never realized rendezvous in New Orleans, the fascinating and sometimes disturbing labyrinth of mind games between John and Yoko, an honest inquiry into the true depth of John and Paul's relationship, and a final rumination on the meaning of pizza and fairy tales. We want to start by making the point that there's still a lot we don't know about John and Paul. And this sounds like kind of an obvious thing to say, but I, I feel like it's important to bear in mind as we go through all this information is that we don't know every phone call and meeting that they ever had. Right. And I feel like every time a new book comes out, we sort of presume that we now know everything there is to know. Maybe that is just a function of having a new book and trying to promote it. You want people to think that you've figured out the story and that they're going to get yeah. the full story. Right. In reality, though, <laughs> every time a new book or interview with an original source comes out, we potentially get just another piece of the puzzle. Yeah. We have to leave room in our mindset that the fact that new stuff keeps coming out means that there's probably still more new stuff that hasn't come out yet right we're obviously not going to get new information from john but you know right. over the past few years we've certainly gotten new information from both paul and yoko oh, so you know, yeah there is stuff that they know that we don't know we know that paul and linda 
came over to the Bank Street apartment of John and Yoko in December 71. And the typical story is that they didn't see each other again until they jammed in LA in spring of 1974. But we know, for example, that they were spotted together in LA before that particular session, both officially and unofficially. We'll talk about that in more detail in episode two. And sometimes one of them will just mention something offhand, like Paul Wentz mentioned he and John listening to the song, I Can Help by Billy Swan over the phone. <laughs> We're never going to know when that call was. Right. No. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have the technology to, <laughs> to find out what phone go back, call that was. Go back in time. <laughs> I guess if, if the tapes are in Nixon's special drawer somewhere. <laughs> That would be wow. amazing. Now that would be a Peter terrifying. Jackson series. <laughs> yes, it would. Hell yes. Half of it's inside jokes that make no sense. Absolutely. It would like be even more confusing once people listen to them. <laughs> like we know yeah, less about their relationship now. I know. <laughs> Probably wouldn't clear a whole lot up. Yeah, for sure. And then they're like watching TV together on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> you just hear like Columbo in the background. <laughs> Yeah, I'd pay good money for those bootlegs. That'd be fun. Me too. All right. Well, I'm I'm composing a letter to Congress, so I'll get it over to you. We'll get the, the needed signatures. We'll have a Beatle fan march on Washington to open up the files. Freedom of information. Yep. I've had a FOIA request going for the last 40 years. <laughs> Paul has recently clarified that the story of him and John watching SNL together in 76 has morphed over the years, that they weren't watching together the night Lorne Michaels made the joke offer for a Beatles reunion, but rather that John told Paul about that episode the Saturday after when he and John were watching SNL together, which doesn't make any difference to the story. (laughs) They still considered showing up at the SNL studio because obviously the network people would still be happy to put them on the show. But for fans who like collecting dates, it's good to know. This is Paul's recollection anyway. And then, of course, there's a pretty good chance that they saw each other in 1980. But for some reason, we're not supposed to know about that. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's secret for some reason. There's a public version. We stick to it. We all agree to stick to it. And so we just want to make the point that we work with what we know. And as always, speculation, quotes, and facts will all be labeled clearly as such. It's an exciting story with lots of twists and turns. (laughs) So go get yourself some popcorn (laughs) and settle in. So the first big problem that I find typically with analysis of this time period is that, in my opinion, everyone is working from the erroneous assumption that Paul is desperate to get back together, whereas John is lukewarm. Yes, Paul is desperate. John couldn't (laughs) give a fuck. It is not true, meaning there just isn't evidence to support this. Do I think John is conflicted? Yes. He probably swings back and forth between being excited and hopeful. We have evidence of that versus being angry and scarce. We have some evidence of that too. 
Absolutely. But do I think John is indifferent towards Paul? <laughs> <laughs> it's absurd. No. <laughs> it's not even, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Anyone still arguing that? It's just not even worth addressing at, at this point. That's, that's a fairy tale. Yeah, exactly. That is a fairy tale. <laughs> For that matter, I'm sure Paul is also conflicted. I mean, it would be impossible for him not to be after the how do you sleep debacle and the trial and <laughs> all of John's interviews in 1971. And also we have several quotes from Paul directly in the 70s where he's lukewarm or not especially affectionate about the Beatles, but those just aren't as widely circulated because they don't support this, you know, black and white trope well and paul himself is none too eager to draw attention to those comments of his because he wants to be seen as the guy who always loved the beatles and wanted to reconcile personally if not reform professionally point is that they're both conflicted because it's a complicated situation with hurt feelings on both sides but the data point often used to support this theory of paul being desperate and john being indifferent is that paul made all the overtures which is both kind of true, but also not true. It's true that Paul made the phone calls and visits. Both yeah, of them. More right? of them, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yes. Not all of them, but most of them. That part is accurate. And, and that definitely implies that Paul is making an effort that maybe John yes. isn't. But again, I mean, that puts Paul in the active position. Paul is a go-getter. <laughs> He's a type A personality. If there's something to be done and he wants to do it, he's going to do it. Whereas right. John, he might want to do something very, very badly and just not be capable of, of following through. Well, it, or, al- it allows John to be in the receptive position. Yes. Right? So he, he gets to either uh, accept or deny. So it gives yes. John a little bit of power. But I think the point is that John is the type of person who needs that, right? He yes. needs people to come to him. He needs people to reach out to him. And he has a hard time doing the reverse. And if you are a person who genuinely believes that John Lennon was always the top dog, alpha male, rock god, everybody's hero, <laughs> you know, including his own equal partner. Who, um, by the way, in retrospect, talks about John as being like his naughty child. <laughs> well, that's a, it's a good quote because it is, it is absolutely <laughs> Paul saying, yes, maybe I indulged him a little bit, you know, like, yeah. out of protectiveness, but he's my baby. Like, yeah, yes, you don't, don't you insult my baby. None of your business. I'll handle yeah. this. Don't call my child naughty. Yeah. Um, actual literal quote. Right. But if you just ignore that for some reason, you're you're like really into this, like our alpha rock God, you'll absolutely argue that this is because John's the alpha. That's why everybody has to come to them. And and like making Paul call him is a power move that lets Paul knows who's calling the shots. Right. Yes. I mean, it's not totally crazy. It is a point of view. I just don't think it's correct yeah. in, this, in this situation, you know? Like, right, or it's certainly not the whole story. That is a potential d- dynamic, right? Like, that is a dynamic sure. that could exist between two people. I just don't think mm-hmm. it's their dynamic. To me, it is, it is somewhat of a power move, 
in so much as it's like intention is to gain something. But I mean, I'd argue that all John is looking for is a feeling of being wanted. Yes, which we know was a through line of his entire life. And so you can call this a power move if you want to. And a lot of guys want to. They like the word power and leader. And they like to throw it all over John all the time. But in my book, the power, quote unquote, he's seeking isn't the ability to dominate. It's the power you get from having your feelings reciprocated, you know? Right. So he's, it's not submit to me. It's prove to me you care. Exactly. Like, you've got to pay attention to me now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yes, in that sense, he is setting up a situation where he's getting what he wants or needs. Yeah. I don't think in doing this that John felt powerful when he played right. this card. But you ever have friends who like they have to be invited to every single yes. thing, even though yes. they they're not gonna come because they don't want to leave their house or whatever. <laughs> but like if you don't invite them, yeah. they'll be like, oh, okay, well, she hates me. Yes. I've invited you yes. 45 times in a row, but the first time you don't invite them, it's like a big thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I've known people like this, and I've actually, I've been this person at some point <laughs> in my life, and it was never ever because I was the dominant one in the relationship or trying to show anyone who was boss. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. that, is, that is a ludicrous read of this behavior to me. It was always, yeah. always because I was feeling down, I was feeling low in some way. That's why I would behave that way to to be fair I wouldn't think badly of people if they stopped inviting me I'd be like well that's fair <laughs> <laughs> probably we've all done it to some extent where we're just like well, sure I wasn't invited and then you're like well fine or yeah just, I wasn't invited. yeah or- but yeah yeah like you were saying like I've done this for people sometimes yeah when you have friends who you have to go to them or you have to call them I've yes. done it before and it's not yeah. because they're the alphas <laughs> No, because sometimes people need you to do that. And so you got to meet people where they are. Well, and thank God for people like you and Paul who do that. Like people like me, like that's a big deal. It helps a lot. It's not a huge ask. If you have the ability to do it and the the bandwidth to do it and you don't care and it's not a big deal, then it's fine. And I think Paul can be quite nurturing in that way. For sure. I mean, not always. And then maybe also because of whatever happened between them and the breakup, this is just my theory, but I think maybe there was probably a little bit of extra neediness on John's part in terms of Paul chasing him a little bit, you know, because I personally think John wanted Paul to chase him after he said i want a divorce sure yeah that that was kind of the plan a is that paul will come back and beg me to stay let me lead the band and let yoko do whatever (laughs) let me lead whatever john's fantasy scenario was right Um, i think it definitely involved paul coming back and begging him to stay and like when paul didn't chase him i think that was really damaging i think that yeah is a big wound I think what Beatle people sometimes might see as Paul being desperate and like trying super hard to get John back. I think John sees this like, 
okay, that's step one. You know, it's like, you're kind of, you know what I mean? It's like, Paul, you filled 5% of the hole. That is the bare minimum. You've cleared the first bar. Right. John's like, well, first of all, if you think we're getting back together, you need to start making some phone calls. Okay. Secondly, it wouldn't hurt you to say something nice about me. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it is that he, that he needs Paul to oh, do. Serious. And in that way, he and Yoko are very similar because that's exactly what Yoko tells Paul that John needs to do for her. Yeah. And fair enough. And, and I think Paul knows. That's why I think yeah. Paul's just like, okay, that's all, that's fine. You need me to chase you a bit? I, that's okay. I can do that. And just as a support point, John spoke about this dynamic in 1980, responding to a comment Mick Jagger made where Mick basically is like, I've tried to maintain a friendship, but John won't make any effort. And John reads this and is upset. Anyway, John says this by way of self-defense. Mick Jagger? I was in Japan at the time and I got this English paper there and it was a big thing in Observer. He said, he likes me, I like him, that business. And he says, you know, I live opposite John or something. He must have lived on the other side of the east side. And he's going on about John never calls. Do you think he ever calls me? He never calls me. And he keeps changing his phone number all the time. And he's hiding behind the kid. I was hurt by it, you know, the fact that, A, I never call anybody. It's not pride, it's just that I never, ever have. Why? I never call the other Beatles. I never call anybody. They always call me. Why? Because I'm self-involved. I'm paranoid, too. I don't like phones. So there's nobody on this earth ever got a call from me that isn't related, probably. Or a very old friend. And even in Liverpool, if they didn't call me, I didn't come. So here he says he can't call his friends because he's self-involved and paranoid. Not because he's the alpha. (laughs) <laughs> or because everybody worships him and he's the leader you know like it's because like he's yes. beneath him to reach out because he's yes. capable these are actual words that john spoke out loud that nope. directly contradict this narrative and also this quote makes me very sad can i just say because mick is like one of john's only friends and yeah. like one of his oldest friends at this oldest, point yeah and it seems like he like he really did try to maintain a relationship with John in New York. And John just didn't do anything to maintain yeah. that friendship. And then he's like, in 1980, he's like, I'm a hurt. Why would he say that I never call him back? It's like, John, because you don't call him back. <laughs> How are you hurt by that? Yeah. I mean, and maybe that's why he says he's like trying to get the message to Mick. He's still self-conscious to call his own friends, but he's cool saying it to reporters. That is, oh, John. I know, makes me sad. Oh, John. And, okay, it bears repeating here, Mick Jagger was not thinking, what a boss that John Lennon is (laughs) for not returning my calls. God, he's cool. Oh, he's so cool. (laughs) I'm too intimidated now by his alpha mask to call him again. It was... Some more along the lines of, I guess he doesn't want to be friends anymore. At most, I guess he's too busy for me, which would be tragic because John was not very busy. He'd probably have been happier if he was, but he was suffering from a lot of things. And, and um... Well, that's the thing is like, you know, it's not because I like I'm really into the 
Mick Jagger, John Lennon friendship or something. I don't care. Yeah, I don't know. I have no I have neutral feelings about Mick Jagger, you know, but <laughs> at best. Yeah. They've known each other for years and not for nothing, but like they're the same age. They have a similar background. Like it's important to have other people with similar life experiences as you too. Yeah. So like he's another famous guy. He yes. knows a lot of what John has to go through. He would be a very good friend to have. Yeah, there's a reason famous people hang out with other famous people. Exactly. Um, And it's not all just like, well, we're the beautiful people and we don't want to hang out with the plebes or whatever. It's, you know, there's a common understanding and it takes some pressure off. It just seems like that would be, if not a best friend match, it would be like a fairly good buddy match. (laughs) Well, it's good to be social. Anyways. This John isn't the coolest guy at Quarry Bank Grammar School. It's like a 35-year-old man who's too insecure to phone his own friends. And I'm not saying that to like be demeaning. It just means that John couldn't handle his relationship with Paul all the time. The fact that his best friend since age 15 is willing (laughs) to make the effort and try to understand and accommodate John's issues and like quirks and needs doesn't mean that John wasn't into him. So it's true that Paul made the calls, but again... You know, I think it's because it is what John required and Paul understood that for the most part and was willing to do it. Yeah, that might be a bit of a tangent, but I just feel really strongly that we need to show compassion and empathy, not just to people uh, with mental illness, but also their caretakers and partners. Yes, yes. And, And that applies to Yoko, too, in John's case, you know, and I'm not saying that either Yoko or Paul are the picture of mental health in the 60s and 70s, (laughs) right? They both have major traumas too, and they've got their own problems. But, you know, we should have even more empathy for them in that case. If they're dealing with their own shit, plus they got to try to manage John. Exactly. There's sometimes this attitude that the people in John's life should have just given him all of the attention and love that he needed without any regard for their own mental health (laughs) right they're all human beings with their own needs and desires as well yes and i just don't i feel like we don't give enough respect to the people in john's life agreed okay another point even though paul did make most of the overtures it's not true that he made all of them the most significant example which is also probably a good place to start this episode chronology wise so after the insanity of 1971 john and paul apparently spent the better part of 1972 making up over the phone and developing like a long distance relationship both john and paul mentioned that they talk on the phone a lot in 1972 but we also have an independent source from the elephant's memory band that would be mr gary van syok he's a terrific guy and he has lots of great stories about john and yoko working with them in the studio anyways he um volunteered that he heard them on the phone multiple times while they were making john and yoko's sometime in new york album in an interview for liveforlivemusic.com in 2015, he was asked, when you worked closely with John, what did his relationship seem to be with the former Beatles? And he says, well, the media would be reporting on this huge Lennon and McCartney feud. The Village Voice had them at each other's throats. 
Then, as we recorded sometime in New York City album, Paul called two or three times and everything would just come to a halt. They would be yucking it up and laughing for over an hour at a time. An hour is a really long phone conversation, by the way. Um, <laughs> it, it is. And then he also mentioned in Tim Riley's book, Lennon, The Man, The Myth, The Music, it was nothing for John to take a call from Paul right in the middle of the session and talk to him for 90 minutes, 1990, <laughs> while we took a break. And they were not fighting or arguing. They talked about family, about the search for Kyoko, Yoko's daughter, about McCartney's kids, trips they were taking. It was family stuff. And you would swear they were best friends. By the way, this is like in the middle of a recording session. Those are expensive. Like they're on the clock. They're supposed to be John's new band. Are we taking 10, boss? Whatever. Uh, Hour and a half. I don't know. Take the day off. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So just to reiterate, John and Paul are best friends. Okay. John said it multiple times in 1971 and 72. Here's John in 71 calling Paul, not just his best friend, but the closest friend he's ever had besides his wife. What do you think of Paul? You know, he's still uh, the closest friend I ever had except the Yoko. So, I mean, I'm still close to him. Whatever goes on. The best friend I've ever had, John says here. And Paul wrote a song in 1972 calling John the best friend a man ever had. Entitled Best Best Friend. friend. Yeah. (laughs) We feel it's important to reiterate out of the gate. They're best friends. They both care a lot. Again, Paul does usually make the overtures, but sometimes John does. Yeah, in a big way in this case. So later that year, John and Yoko agreed to do a benefit concert for the Willowbrook State School on August 30th. And as the date grew closer, John called and invited Paul and Linda to appear with him and Yoko and do the concert together. Paul declined because Alan Klein was involved. So let's just point out what what might be obvious at this point, which is that if John is insecure about Paul and insecure about being rejected, it's a bit unfortunate that when he does <laughs> go way out on a limb and hey. Paul, like come and ask him to play with him less than a year after how do you sleep mind you paul says no and it was because of alan klein right but a no is still a no that that would have stung i assume although part of me wants to ask if he's afraid of being rejected why he would risk asking something like that when he knew <laughs> how intractable Paul was about Klein. Did he maybe on some level want Paul to say no? His sensitivity to rejection is so like pathologically extreme that it's it's strange for me that he would put himself out there when, again, he had a lot of data pointing toward if Klein is there, Paul is not going to yeah. do it. No well, way. Like we don't know the content of their conversations in 1972. Sure. I mean, they might've, because one of the first things that Paul says in 73 after Klein is fired he says now the you know the gates are open like now it's yeah. free to do whatever we want yeah there's there's nothing to stop us which is wow a huge deal two seconds after <laughs> after they shit can Klein he's in an interview saying we can get back now. together yeah. now yeah. well I mean shortly after Paul says nope 
can't do it because a client john's like he's fired right? <laughs> <laughs> i didn't like him anyway i never i never thought like i always figured it was purely you know legal financial john figured out finally that Klein was a scumbag, so he canned him. And I'm like, yes, but also maybe. Well, I think it's like a combo you say, of all those things. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it might have been because he was not adverse to maybe getting back together with Paul and or the Beatles. Yeah, I mean, it's an on. Obviously, it's been an ongoing problem since 1969. You know, Paul's yeah. been like, I don't fuck with Alan Klein. Period. Yeah. End the story. You know, I'm yeah. not doing it. Like, you guys are not. I- tricking me into a you know jam session you're not getting me to come to the bangladesh concert or whatever like i'm not it's not gonna happen if client is there i'm not going anywhere near him the only thing i could think is that maybe they were flirting with the idea of doing a show or something too yeah you know we can't record because that's going to be tied up in legal stuff but maybe we could you know what i mean like maybe they had talked on stage in a, yes exactly in an offhand way um and then john was like well well this concert would be good and paul's like i can't do a concert with you if klein's there i was talking about maybe doing a spontaneous thing like in a club or you know whatever well you know the idea he's been pitching since <laughs> right? 1969 right. but you know what it's like that's kind of what happens in 74 with that stupid tooth yeah. snore thing that's it's true. Like Paul does come up with no fanfare, no call ahead. No, just that's yeah. what he that's what Paul wants. Can we get everybody off our dicks for five seconds and <laughs> yeah, just well, jam except- together without cameras yeah. rolling and everything? Yeah. I mean, it's a fair, it's a fair question. Like we we're saying, it could, you know, a no feels like a no, no matter what. Even if you're expecting it, it's gonna yeah. sting slightly. Yeah. And John typically does not set himself up for no's. I no. mean, we, we just went through that. It's like, he doesn't <laughs> exactly. even want to make yeah. a phone call. And Yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe Yoko suggested it because she knew that Paul yeah. would say no. And then John would be upset. Or may- maybe <laughs> their astrologer said the stars were right. You know, who knows? But the important thing is that John went out on a limb. A big, yeah. like, limb. This was a much bigger <laughs> um, overture than a phone call. So 1972, at the same time that John and Paul were getting close again, John and Yoko were having marriage problems. Here's Steve Gebhardt, producer of the concert film. He said, after we'd done the one-to-one concert film, I remember John saying to me that the days of everything being John and Yoko, one word, were over. I was shocked. And then... According to Peter Doggett's You Never Give Me Your Money, a month or two later, in mid-January 1973, Lennon and Opal quarreled publicly at another party, and John (laughs) is quoted as saying, I wish I was back with Paul. So I think that's notable for two (laughs) important reasons. Firstly, it's already been established that Paul McCartney is a sore spot and source of insecurity for Yoko. We've got numerous examples, uh, which we don't really need to dwell on, but just to make the point, we'll quickly give you three. Yoko saying in 1968, two weeks after she started dating John, that Paul would have been a threat had he been a woman. She actually (laughs) says would have been a great threat. (laughs) Oh, yes. Thank you. Had he been a woman. Yeah. Also, we have Yoko's comment about hearing, this is a quote, 
a rehearsal tape with John's voice calling out Paul, Paul in a strangely subservient pleading way. So not in a dominant demanding. <laughs> not, not in an alpha male way. And then thirdly, we have Yoko's co-authorship of How to Use Loop. Yeah, which can at the very least be considered aggressive towards Paul. <laughs> yeah, I think we can all agree. To burn, burns a, burn a bridge there. So I think if John's specifically trying to hurt Yoko and play upon her securities, this is probably the worst thing or the best thing, you know, he could have said <laughs> to her. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is important to bear in mind as we go through this episode that Paul is someone both John and Yoko can weaponize against the other. And then secondly, it's important because John wishes he was back with Paul. Right. So it helps us set the scene for 1973. John and Yoko are about to split. John and Paul are poised to get back together. And in spring of 73, John says this to Elliot Mintz. There's one name that has not come up in our discussion. Who's that? Paulie. <laughs> yes, he did. We no. could call him in. I, 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 <laughs> no, well, I object to that. He, 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 Paulie business. Uh, <laughs> Paul, uh, Mr. McCartney, his name will Paul. be... Paul. Yes. <laughs> John is asked yet again to explain how do you sleep, which he clearly does not want to do, but he does anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and then he adds that Yoko and Linda got along fine and never had a fight about anything. And as you've probably heard or people have read, Paul and I have communicated, Linda and Yoko have communicated. Uh, another myth was Linda and Yoko had all sorts of arguments going on in, in the early period, and they never had one. No, never. And yeah. they related to each other fairly well. And if anything, the arguments were between the two males, you know, the machos. And that's how it was. And as far as I'm concerned, it's all over. And I hope not to go through that kind of trip again with anybody for whatever reason it's just a waste of energy and time there you go and we're fine you know and if we could meet probably be finer but the governments are making it inconvenient well it's almost like he's a little insulted that people are saying oh it was the ladies having a cat fight or whatever which which is it is offensive. Like that's really yeah, but not for the reason so he's John's offended. No, <laughs> no, John's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, it was the men, the two males. The we machos. can have our own bitch fight. Thank you very much. <laughs> we don't need to farm that out to our wives. <laughs> Around that time, John and Yoko also do a TV interview where John announces his split with Alan Klein and says this. John, can you tell me what happened with Alan Klein? Why did you and the other two try to get, decide finally to get rid of him? Uh, well, there are many reasons to get finally given the push. Although, uh, I don't want to go into the details of it. Let's say that uh, possibly Paul's suspicions were right. And uh, the time was right. And then he talks about moving forward and how all the Beatles should get together and hash things out privately. Well, you mean you haven't done that already? Well, A, because we had uh, these people keeping us apart, as it, almost, you know? You That's what it fit. boiled down to, is it? Well, it's like the, when the lawyers come into the divorce, you know? And that makes it a whole different ball game, you know? Speak to my lawyer. But you... Although um, we have communicated over the phone in the last year, Paul and I, often. Yeah, I mean, you've been communicating with each other for longer than that, surely, haven't you? In fact, right through all this. Or was there a time when you weren't talking well, it was to each a period. other? Well, it wasn't that we weren't talking to each other. There, there was so much going on, we didn't get a chance, you know. And he was up in Campbelltown. <laughs> Gardening. Gardening. 
Yeah. Uh, he was up there for a long time at one period. Nobody could find, get in touch with him at all. So the gardening is presumably a reference to Paul's recent drug bust. He got arrested for growing marijuana on his Campbelltown farm. <laughs> the the on seeds that came up illegal. Right, yeah. that came up illegal, yeah. <laughs> and as John said, the government is making it hard for John and Paul to see each other. So um, like we mentioned before, Paul can't enter the U.S. and John can't leave. So around the same time, Paul gives an interview about John and says this. Now he's gone out. The main obstacle to uh, people working together has been removed, you know. I mean, it means now that, uh, say, you know, if we fancy working with each other. So, But it doesn't mean necessarily the Beatles are going to reform, you know. It might mean that I'll play a concert with John in New York somewhere. George might roll in, Ringo might roll in, and you find that the Beatles are on stage kind of thing. Mm. But at the moment, there's no great plans to get back together. You know, it's, uh, I know as much as you, really. But I say, you know, there's no kind of anger in there anymore, so that's a nice thing. I mean, how's the animosity between John there's and none of that. Well, there's none of that. I mean, see, you've got to remember, you know, in our position, you know, uh, what they do when you, you... All you have to do is... All that has to happen is John to write a snidey song about me or to do a snidey article about me. And uh, I'm expected to kind of jump down his throat. And whilst I was a bit cheesed off by it, obviously, um, I tried not to and we eventually kind of cooled off and after a couple of months uh, we were chatting away on the phone and kind of talking quite peacefully between each other and happily you know um, but I think just because we didn't say to the press oh by the way everyone we are now talking you know because you don't you don't announce who you're talking to and we still feel pretty human so we don't go announcing you know if I phone John I don't ring up the BBC say uh, seen and heard I'd like to do an interview you know and on the interview yeah I met John you know, I mean, it's not like that. Again, I just want to emphasize that Paul, that Paul not fighting John in the press and then forgiving him and still wanting a relationship afterward is not a showing of weakness. Hmm. Paul sold himself out a bit, as he so often does. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. With the self-deprecating, well, part of it was cowardice when he talks about not wanting to fight John. And I don't think he's lying there. I think yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. John, John was not a fun person to fight. For sure. If he's saying, listen, if John's holding the knife, I don't want to throw gasoline on him. I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> Nobody wants right. to do that, right? John will go nuclear, yes. you know, at the drop of a hat. So I take his point and I believe him. Sure. You know, he's yeah. like, I'm not about to, you know, yeah. make it worse because I mean, he'll fucking yeah. tear me to pieces. Sure. But I don't think that makes him a coward. Yeah, cowardice <laughs> is a little strong. Yeah, yeah. So I yeah. definitely think it is like, I don't want to make this worse. That's the main thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then B, also like, I just want to de-escalate the situation. I don't want it to go past the point of no the return. point of no return, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and like, Although, I mean, if How Do You Sleep wasn't that point, it's, you know, is there a point of no return for these two? Well, know. that's a good point. It's like the line <laughs> is drawn somewhere in hell. It's such. <laughs> I mean, you could certainly argue that it is a sign of weakness because he should have just been done with him or whatever. Like yeah. a lot, of, you know, some people would say not worth it. Fuck it. No guy's worth sure. that. Sure. Like sure. no friendship is worth that. Which um, would be valid. It, right. Exactly. That is a valid opinion if that's your opinion. But whatever. In Paul's assessment, he thought it was worth it. So. Yeah. You know. 
and then Paul heads to Nigeria to make Band on the Run. So John and Yoko decide to split. According to Yoko, their sex life was in a slump, so they decided to separate on a trial basis. This is from Philip Norman's book on John. Yoko said, Look, John, are we going to be one of those old conservative couples who are together just because we're married? They agreed it would do their relationship no harm if John had other sexual partners. So Yoko arranged for Mei Peng, the Lenin's young assistant, to live with John and function as both minder and lover. Um, it was selected after John and Yoko debated whether he should have a male or female companion. John said, it would hurt you like crazy if I made it with a girl. With a guy, maybe you wouldn't be hurt because that's not competition. But I can't make it with a guy because I love women too much. And I'd have to fall in love with the guy. And I don't think I can. What strikes me most about this is how he's offering to get a boyfriend ostensibly for purely altruistic reasons to spare Yoko's feelings. Like when he was talking to Pete Shotton and he said he let Brian toss him off in Spain just because he felt so sorry for the guy. What a nice guy. He's so generous. Yeah. Okay, so what strikes me is the fact that John says he has to be in love with the guy first. To me, that is odd. Not because that's a terrible way to, you know, look at sex or anything, but just because he clearly doesn't think of women that way. Right. And again, this isn't a judgment in any way. It's just an observation that like it's 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 weird that that applies to men, but not women. Right. And it's something that Yoko reiterated in 2016 to the Daily Beast. Uh, She says that John told her he didn't want to sleep with a man unless there was a deeper connection. So I'm going to read from the Daily Beast here. He said, I don't mind if there's an incredibly attractive guy. It's very difficult. They would have to be not just physically attractive, but mentally very advanced too. And you can't find people like that. Question. So did Lennon ever have sex with men? No, I don't think so, said Ono. The beginning of the year he was killed, he said to me, I could have done it, but I can't because I just never found somebody that was that attractive. Right. So again, here, he's saying he wants or needs the whole package, right? Mental and emotional attraction, not just physical, which makes me wonder, based on these two quotes, which are seven years apart and pretty consistent, um, I wonder if John would label his same-sex attraction as more romantic than sexual. Hmm. Okay, like I think there is a presumption that he's bisexual for obvious reasons, right? Right. Because he's fairly open about his attraction to men. And there's his friendship with Stuart Sutcliffe, which is interpreted Mm -hmm. by some to have romantic overtones. And then there's John and Paul's relationship, which reads like a love affair in many ways, especially in the breakup era. And then he's also rumored to have sexual liaisons with men. Right. Um, Last but not least. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But when you look at it, when you really look at it, other than the thing with Brian in Barcelona that we know happened, we don't really have any guys who have come out and said, yeah, I had sex with him. Which obviously that doesn't conclusively prove that 
it didn't happen and those guys don't exist sure but on the other hand i'm skeptical that they do because john's been dead for 40 years and the time to cash in is long past (laughs) right right and if he came away from barcelona thinking hell yeah i really enjoy gay sex (laughs) and i want more (laughs) you'd think it'd be something he'd pursue exactly right yes he'd go looking for more more same-sex experiences which yeah he doesn't really appear to right although he he doesn't seem to let it go like it seems to still be an issue with him oh yeah it's not like he decided eh, nope right but but like i'm saying if you have forbidden fruit and you're like that's the best fucking (laughs) apple i've ever had you're gonna go get more of them sure yeah yeah if you have it and you're like, well, this tastes weird. I'm not sure what I think about this, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. but I still am really attracted to apples. Right. Maybe I just haven't had the right one. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. That's kind of sometimes what I get from him that he's, he's like, I want to try it again, but that wasn't, that experience wasn't uh, positive enough. Meaning like it wasn't proof positive that, you know what I'm trying to say? I'm sure like you could push back and be like, well, that's ridiculous. And not everybody goes out, runs out and has sex for people or whatever, whatever. But like, yeah, which I agree. But this but John was sleeping (laughs) with tons and tons of groupies. So he's not a prude. And by the way, I'm not trying to erase his bisexuality at all. I'm not suggesting he wasn't bi because he didn't have enough gay sex. A person's sexual identity <laughs> is not predicated on their sexual experience. So John doesn't need to meet a certain threshold of same-sex behavior to qualify as bisexual. That is not how it works. And the label itself isn't important to me. And it's moot because only John can choose it anyway. Right, right. Although to me, he does seem to identify somewhere on that very broad spectrum of LGBTQA, which to me is evidenced in his quote about, I was trying to put around, I was gay and writing our bodies, our own, leave us alone in the gay liberation book. Mm -hmm. Obviously it's a matter of interpretation, but my interpretation is that john considers himself part of the family as it were yes and that that's what i hear in in that remark in the 1975 hit parader interview where he says he's been going to gay clubs in order to start rumors that he's gay i feel like he's actually expressing some self-acceptance here and some pride yes and we realize that going to a gay club does not automatically make a person gay that is not what we're saying but the very popular with older fans interpretation of oh that john going to gay clubs what a hilarious joke doesn't really work for me because if it's if it's a joke yeah what's the punchline exactly yeah the is the joke that i was having a great time and feeling accepted and (laughs) feeling good about myself yeah for the first time in a million years and if it's a joke john's real committed to the build-up to this joke (laughs) like he's going to gay clubs multiple times checking off his itinerary there we go i got that one in nice setup (laughs) can't wait can't wait to get to this big payoff for this this, (laughs) this hilarious joke 
And even beyond those two quotes from Yoko, we also have an anecdote from May that certainly seems to suggest that John identifies as bi. Apparently, Tony King gifted John with two books. This is in November 1973 that he was reading them. And the first one was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which John loved. And the other is Nigel Nicholson's Portrait of a Marriage. This is from May's book which Tony said would remind John of his marriage to Yoko. Portrait of a marriage really disturbed him. The book was an account of the 50 year marriage of Vita Sackville West and Harold Nicholson, both of whom were bisexual and continually unfaithful to each other, yet were able to evolve a relationship of great depth and longevity despite the incompleteness of their marriage. John was very distressed by the theme of sexual incompatibility in the midst of great emotional attraction and the fact that no matter how hard one tries, a marriage may always remain incomplete. That's heavy. Yes, it's very heavy. And Tony, I can't believe Tony gave him that book and said, this will remind you of your marriage to Yoko. Right. And John. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then it, it, and then it proceeded to like seriously distress John. Right. What's the relationship you have with someone where that is an appropriate thing to do here? Have this book. Well, Tony is the, like Tony and Elton are the ones taking John to the gay clubs. Yeah. So maybe they know what? more than, you know, yeah. we think they maybe. know. Somebody needs to interview Tony and Elton while there's still time. Yeah. For mm-hmm. real. Anyways, um, definitely the implication here is that John's identifying with this marriage in a way that is upsetting to him. And it doesn't necessarily have to be because of the bisexual angle. I mean, it could just be the sexual incompatibility angle. Mm-hmm yeah the incompatibility that is never resolved yeah right that's never yeah. resolved um even though they love each other and they have other good things about their marriage yeah but it does appear to support the idea that something is missing from the john and yoka marriage so phoebe what in the <laughs> world does any of this have to do with paul well you know what daphne i'm glad you asked <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, as a, as you were reading that, it actually occurred to me that we've definitely posited the possibility that John and Paul's relationship was one of um, sexual incompatibility yeah. in the midst of great emotional attraction. That's true. That's true. So they could be the same couple. I mean, yeah. And, and not for nothing. I mean, they did have longevity. I mean, even though they're yeah. no longer together in 73, they were together oh. for a long time, more than, oh yeah, longer than probably most marriages nowadays. Yeah. It's not nothing. Well, I don't know who made the golden rule that sex and love had to go together because I've enjoyed love without sex and sex without love. And uh, they are quite often come together, but just <laughs> very good, <laughs> but quite often they don't. Okay, so my, what I'm thinking is that, like, if the threat from Yoko's point of view is not simply about a physically attractive man, but 
rather one that John has a strong emotional bond with or is capable mm-hmm. of forming a strong emotional bond with, who is the man she'd most want to keep John away from? Maybe the guy John's been crying and screaming about since she met him. John just said aloud the year before that he's not gay, but if he and Paul had a gay relationship that might have satisfied it, meaning I assume that they might never have broken up. Right, right, right. He's asked about working with Yoko and specifically what it's like to work with someone who's also your wife. And he says, It's a plus, it's not a minus. The plus is that your best friend also can hold you without, I mean, I'm not homosexual or, or we could have had a homosexual relationship, but maybe that would have satisfied it with working with other male artists. Like even more than what, than the meat of what he's saying, like, well, if we could have had a gay relationship, maybe that would have worked. The fact that he says satisfied it, like satisfied what, John? He doesn't say maybe that would have fixed it or that would have solved it. Mm. He says satisfied it. So what is the it? What is unsatisfied on his end? So tell me what that distinction means to you, satisfied as opposed to fix or solve. So fix, fix or solved would indicate that there's a problem that needs to be negated, whereas satisfied means mm. that there's a lack. Something, oh, yes, yeah, like something Something lacking. Yeah, that John is conscious of and wanting More. to have satisfied. Yeah, that's a good point. That is an important distinction. Yeah. I mean, is he just talking about his desire to have everything in one person? Sex, love, romantic attachment, and artistic collaboration? And if so, why does he desire that? Why, why does he need that versus yeah. everybody else right. on the planet who have multiple people in their lives and not just one messiah? Yes. Or is he saying that he had a desire for a relationship with Paul that went unsatisfied? I mean, he goes on to say working with other male artists, yeah, artists, other other male male artists. artists. But I mean, that's transparent, right? He's talking about Paul. Well, what other male artists did he work with? (laughs) I mean, exactly. You know, yeah, he's not talking about Ringo. And he's never written with anybody else in his life other than no, it's just like yoga. And he's also extremely clear about that. Even like 10 years later down the line, he's like, other than a one night stand with Elton or Bowie or whatever. Yeah. And me and Paul were the Beatles. George and Ringo could have been any other two guys. So I don't, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. so (laughs) So I don't think he's longing for something more with them. So to break this down, John, (laughs) you and Paul couldn't have a sexual relationship because you're not gay, but if you could have, you might still be together, but also you could have sex with a guy if you were in love with him. Yeah. If I'm Yoko, I don't like that math. Mm -mm, That math is not good for her. (laughs) No. Regardless of whether or not she realistically thinks anything could happen with Paul, it's 
pretty obvious why she wouldn't want him in John's life. Yes. Maybe that's part of the, you know, a big part of the reason why Yoko's like, no, no, I'm going to choose your your companion. And I, and she is going to report to me, like she, she's going to be on the payroll. She's going to be young and (laughs) easily manipulated and And of my choosing. I'm like, I know you're attracted to her. So yes. So be a good reason for you to come home at night. Take your horny (laughs) ass home. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's not crazy. I mean, it's unusual for sure. It is. And really inappropriate. Highly inappropriate. um, Yeah. But it's not crazy. No, it's, it's a good, it's a good plan. It actually is a good plan. I, you know, Yoko is a strategic Yeah, she's no genius fool. sometimes. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Like you can judge her or not judge her. Sure. She is no clown. Nope. <laughs> she's like, you're not going to clown me, McCartney. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one step well, yeah. ahead of your dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> so Norman concludes with this. Though eager to accept the sexual freedom Yoko was offering, John felt squeamish about doing anything under her nose in New York. So then I suggested Los Angeles, she remembers, and he just let up. So summer or fall of 1973, John moves to L.A. and writes a song called I Know, I Know for Paul. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, John never said publicly that it was for Paul. This Mm -hmm. is just an educated guess based on A, the circumstances, and B, the numerous and very obvious lyrical references (laughs) to (laughs) Lennon McCartney songs, including In My Life, Yesterday, and Getting Better. Additionally, the title, I Know, I Know, is the same phrase that John and Paul repeated to each other whilst on their extra special first acid trip together in 1967, which occurred on the same night that they were recording the Beatles track, you guessed it, Getting Better. From the same 1973 interview with Elliot Mintz that we played earlier, John says this about Paul. He said, Whether we plan to express our innermost feelings or sort of surreal it like Dylan or Paul, you could say his lyrics are very sort of nonspecific. But if one knows the person, one knows what is coming down. I'll share some of John's lyrics from I Know I Know. And I know what's coming down. I can feel where it's coming from. And I know it's getting better all the time as we share in each other's minds. Today, I love you more than yesterday. Right now. I love you more right now. I love you more is the same pledge from in my life. Although sometimes I've seen the lyrics written as I love you more or I love you more. Is it I love you more or is it? Oh, for in my life? Yeah. Oh, I've never seen that. I've always thought it was I love you more. I love you more. Although. As a continuation of In My Life, I'll Love You More actually makes a little more sense. Just It does. Sentence structure wise. I always hear I love you more, but it makes it does make more sense as I will love you more, which Mm -hmm. that's why it sounds like a wedding song or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pledge. But I I love you more sounds to me like um, 
no matter what, I'm going to be the one who loves you more. Which is a totally different thing. Oh, you're blowing my mind right now. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. (laughs) Blowing minds and taking names. (laughs) Another kind of... (laughs) I don't know why it's I know I know. Why is it too? That has to be a reference to something because he doesn't repeat it in the like they're nowhere in the song does he say i know i know that's true maybe one of the i knows is paul and the other i know is paul because they sat there and stared at each other and said that back and forth yeah yeah just for the record john's handwritten lyrics to in my life which you can find on the internet they say i'll love you more i will however um everywhere i've seen the lyrics published the line says i love you more and that is what it sounds like on the record, too. Yeah, I mean, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. I Know I Know is a song about reconciliation. John says, I've grown. I'm sorry. I hear you. I know you tried. I still feel our bond. I love you as much as ever. I love you more. <laughs> yeah. Than yesterday. I love you even more than I ever did. So as apologies mm-hmm. go, this one's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And just in terms of it being a shout out to Paul, I would also like to point out that in addition to the lyrical callbacks to Beatles songs, the guitar riff is straight from I've Got a Feeling that that part. Also, I just want to make a point that although we acknowledge that John never said this song was for Paul, The criteria that we use to determine that how do you sleep is about Paul is exactly the same criteria we're applying here. Bam. (laughs) How do we know how do you (laughs) sleep is for Paul? Because he mentions Sergeant Pepper yesterday and another day. (laughs) Plus a reference to Paul is dead. The only difference is that how do you sleep is angry and aggressive. So people are comfortable with that. Yes. But I know, I know is sweet and loving and people are uncomfortable with that. But it's literally the only difference. Paul also writes a line for John at the end of the song, No Words. Um, No Words was mainly written by Denny Lane. Um, But at the end, there's the line, I wish you'd see, it's only me, I love you. So that's a reference to a story Paul um, has since (laughs) told a few times. Mm -hmm. So the story that Paul is referencing is the story where John took his glasses down during an argument with Paul and said, it's only me. I love you. Usually when he tells this story, he just says, it's only me. But he was comfortable and or drunk enough to quote John (laughs) saying, I love you. Uh, at least once to the Telegraph in 2009. So that dispels for me any doubt that <laughs> that, that line then, it's only me, I love you, is for John. I mean, it's like word for word. With the yeah, story. exactly. Most of the song, No Words, were from Denny. It's actually two songs that Paul suggested they stick together. And then Paul jumps in, throws down, it's only me, I love you. And then was like, peace out. <laughs> Drop the mic. That was the end of him helping write the song. In my mind, for Paul, as soon as he heard that Denny had a 
a song called No Words. He was like, yes, you know, that's the world I live in. Like he says it all the time. I can't tell you how I feel. My heart is like a wheel. And, you know, um, I couldn't say the words. Words wouldn't get my feelings through. True. Whether or not you want to think that those songs are about John. And they're oh, far it's from the Paul the McCartney ones. team it's, for sure. It, absolutely, yes. Yeah, he though he can't express his feelings to anyone. Yes, this is like not, I mean, he has John specific. No, <laughs> John's not special in that regard. Um, <laughs> I think he have a, he has a painting called Unspoken Words too, where it's like faces with big X's over their mouths oh, and stuff. No. So I know, like he he struggles sometimes. I don't think. Paul has ever said officially that this line was for John. Um, so we don't have any proof. <laughs> We're just using the information we have and just making a logical leap. Yes. We, know, we know that they speak to each other through the song and that they've talked about that a lot without drawing us a map. You know, they didn't do a slideshow yes. of all the songs right. that they wrote for each other. Yeah, um, there's no answer key. But if they're like, yes, we speak to each other through music, then I think we're all within the, (laughs) you know, realm of good taste to conjecture it, maybe what those songs would be. So like the ones that they're writing at these moment in time when they're trying to reconcile and whatever educated guesswork here. (laughs) Yeah, we're just the most likely candidates. I don't think best friend has been officially confirmed by Paul to be about John either. No, just to, as a disclaimer. So there we go. Scene is set. John and Paul love each other. They're ready to make up, ready to possibly start over whatever that entails we don't know precisely but like we don't know if they're thinking about writing songs again um maybe that's the long-term goal and for now you know they're just trying now to maybe hang out again paul returns from nigeria releases band on the run and becomes a huge smash and here's where things get complicated (laughs) so simple before (laughs) weren't complicated before Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. So here's where they get even more complicated. So John and May have um, a little, you know, romance going on at this point. They're sleeping together. They're living together. Basically his boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, John's making his record. He's socializing with his old friends. He's spending time with Julian, but he is also in regular phone contact with Yoko. Still speaking to her practically every day. And Yoko is also speaking to May regularly. She's giving her orders. She's asking for progress reports. So John and Yoko are physically separated, but not completely split up. Yes. Much like John and Paul, honestly. Not unlike. (laughs) They're physically apart, but they haven't really mentally separated, I guess. No, not at all. So in, in January of 1974, John's lawyers who are based in new york they're like listen we have a bunch of legal shit that we need to talk to you about and so just fly over here john and may go back to new york they plan on staying for like a week so they can just take care of business and and then they're headed back to la so the lawyers come in they have meetings with john they go over all this apple stuff there's all kinds of you know legal bullshit and then they've been putting off this last bit 
of business until the very end because <laughs> they're dreading telling him about it. They're, <laughs> they're finally like on the last day, they're like, listen, John, uh, Yoko's asking for a divorce attorney. And John, he doesn't say anything and he just looks over at May and May just gets up and leaves. She sits down in the waiting room for like 30 minutes. He comes out and he's like, everything's fine i'm just going over to the dakota for a moment no need for alarm <laughs> yeah exactly he goes over to the dakota john and yoko start up with their mind games she keeps calling john keeps slamming the phone down there's a, a whole drama about a fur coat that yoko gives to may and may's supposed to go over and thank her and whatever then yoko decides that she wants to throw a party at the dakota <laughs> and specifically invite mick jagger <laughs> This is very important. And she informs John that she is planning to tell Mick and the other guests that she had thrown John out. But especially Mick. But it's definitely especially Mick. He's the main player in this in this drama. And May gets really annoyed and she's like, why does she have to do this? And uh, John says, she's my best friend. I don't give a shit, but these things matter a lot to her. I don't give a damn. It's really kind of sweet. John calling her his best friend and kind of, you know, (laughs) saying this is something she needs. It's a little whack, but I don't (laughs) mind. So whatever. It's true. This is one of the compromises that our marriage requires. (laughs) It's obviously a problem because it skews the the actual understanding of the real events that went on. So from that perspective, it's very, very annoying and frustrating. But from this sort of relationship angle it's kind of sweet like for them it is yeah yeah i get why yoko wants to spin things to make her look better and he probably has some sympathy of for the fact that in terms of like public appearances he has way more cachet she's at a disadvantage in the public eye for sure and i'm sure that he had some guilt for for how she was treated by the press because obviously not that it was yeah his fault fault or his intention exactly but it wouldn't have happened if she hadn't gotten together with him same as same as yeah 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 good point good point yeah anyways so back to may's book a series of calls began all of them focused on getting john to agree to the party and to agree to yoko's story that she had thrown him out and John had to promise to make especially sure that Mick Jagger never learned that John had left Yoko of his own accord. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, just as the calls continue for four days and John remains consistent that he's not going. And then he finally loses his temper and shouts into the phone. I don't give a damn what you tell Mick. All I know is that you're trying to play games with me and I've had enough. If you want the fucking divorce, do it fast. And then she says, after John's outburst, Yoko lays low for a few days. (laughs) So basically, John calls her bluff. Yeah, he calls her bluff and shouts at her and she backs off and sort of disappears for a few days. Yeah. So all in all, they end up staying in New York for about three weeks until right after Yoko's birthday. And then... The day before they fly back to L.A., John says, "Okay, uh, I'm going to go say goodbye to Yoko. And he takes off for the Dakota. And as soon as he gets back to May, like they're planning to go to the airport right away, May knows something is wrong because John is super upset. And he tells this 
bizarre story. Um, okay. So, you know, we rely heavily on May's book, Loving John, as do all other authors and researchers, by the way. Her book is highly recommended. So please find a copy if you can and uh, check it out. It's, it's really the bedrock of everything we know about this period. Well, it's, it's an important historical document. It really is. It really is. Okay, yeah, and and it and it should be treated as such. It's true. Uh, this particular this particular story I have to read because you would not believe me if I paraphrased it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, so they get so they get on the plane to LA and John immediately slams like four vodkas. May starts panicking because awesome. she she knows she can't control him when he's drunk. And he's clearly disturbed about something. So she finally asks him what's wrong. And he shouts at her, how could you do this to me? So she goes, what did I do? John says, I know I shouldn't bring this up. I know it's none of my business, but I can't help it. I can't tell you how much you've hurt me. He ordered another drink. There was a pained expression on his face. How could you do this to me? He repeated and gulped the drink. Then he put the drink down and turned slowly to me. He grabbed my arm and slowly began to twist it. He was like a child playing with a toy that he had suddenly decided he wanted to break. I let out a scream and tried to pull away. He twisted even harder. I froze and did not move. I have no right to bring this up, he said again. Say it, please say it. John opened his mouth to speak, but the words wouldn't come. Instead, he dropped my arm and grabbed my hair, yanking my head back against the seat. He looked very confused. It was the look that overcame him when he was drunk. Okay. So May starts looking for an escape route in the plane. She's like, holy shit, can I go back to business class or something? So she, <laughs> she doesn't buy much. Kidding. She's afraid of pushing him over the edge. So she kind of doesn't know what to do. And John says, Yoko told me something about you, something awful. She's like, what did she tell you? Finally, John told me that Yoko had discovered the name of a man I had gone out with once. A man John also knew. And she described my affair with this man to John. The guy said that your libido wasn't that great, John snapped, wrenching my head back again. John, who was an insanely jealous man, was always deeply threatened by the thought that any woman he loved had been with or had even considered being with another man. I looked around. The people near us were pretending they weren't listening, but it was obvious they were. I turned back to him. That was three years ago, and I never dreamed we would get together. John yanked my hair. Yoko told me that you only slept with him once and you didn't have enough libido. I didn't love him the way I love you, I pleaded. I felt awkward and I probably didn't satisfy him. It's like they're having two conversations. Right? <laughs> yeah. She's like, I, what, are you jealous? And John's like, you didn't fuck him enough. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's funny to me <laughs> that the, the first way that, John's, that John phrases it is so like inoffensive your libido wasn't that great <laughs> but he's like absolutely <laughs> like losing it right it's just such a disparity well, I, he's spiraling he's like absolutely he's, spiraling yeah. yes and why and I, may has no insight into it which is even more disturbing well and, yeah weird like what yeah. are you talking about john okay I couldn't look John straight in the eyes, not because I was embarrassed, but because I couldn't bear seeing the deranged look on his face. Yoko wanted to know how I could be happy with a woman who didn't have enough libido. I defended you to Yoko. I told her that you had enough libido for me. I told her your libido was fine. I had to defend you to Yoko. I had to keep defending you. I looked at John. 
my words as logical as they were had not gotten through and automatically <laughs> i thought back to that moment when yoko told me she knew where his deepest fears lay what john had to know what? that a woman responds differently to different men he had to know that i found him a wonderful lover i could not remember a day that we had been together when we had not made love even during the most awful moments in los angeles still once again john preferred to ignore the truth in order to drown himself in self-pity. I felt sick and sad as I watched him continue to swig vodka, stopping to scream at me or to attack me physically. No one on the plane said or did anything, shocker. Of course. Ignoring us, even though they were aware of what was going on, the stewardesses patrolled the aisles, refilling John's glass, looking the other way while John yanked my hair and twisted my arms. Thanks, stewardesses. I'm hurt. What you did hurt me. You hurt me. I'm hurt. He wailed as he grew progressively drunker. Because of what you did, I had to defend you to Yoko. What the fuck is he talking about? I... I cannot even the only the only thing I have is maybe he is accusing her of like faking orgasms and stuff yeah faking being attracted to him right uh that's all I've got which is insane what's also insane is the way he phrases having to defend her to Yoko like not defend our sex life not explain our sex life he has to defend May like this is a moral failing yeah. And he has to convince Yoko that she is sexual. I, I why? John feels like he's been made a fool of somehow. That's what I'm getting. Yeah, yeah me too. Um so maybe something like you don't really find me attractive. You've just been lying to me. Yeah. Everybody's lying to me. Everybody's Everybody, with me. Right. Yes. You say I'm a good lover, but Obviously, that can't be true because you're frigid. <laughs> yeah, you're paid to say that. Well, <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. He's insecure in every relationship. But I'm sure there was an extra layer of insecurity with May because she was being paid. She was their yeah, employee. She was. She, was. she answered it, to Yoko. Yeah. But it can like it's still really weird because he n- never says anything that actually makes sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if he if he had said like do you love me? I thought you loved me. She'd, she'd be like, of course I love you, you know, whatever. Or if he was like, I thought you said it was sexy and you said you liked it. She could just reassure him. Right. Like, of course you're right. sexy. You're the man. And she could like feel him up on the plane or what? Like, yeah. And also they fuck all the time. So, but it, the conversation never goes there. Right. It just, just hangs in this weird limbo, <laughs> this weird libido limbo of, you know adjudicating may's sex drive and how that reflects on john because he's like i'm personally attacked you know it's just like <laughs> what like when so it's confusing. not even when it's not may who has told him this like he's hearing a third hand from some dude she used to date well and it's also it's not like yoko was like I heard that May currently has a low libido and you two right. are fucking. So clearly your sex must be intermittent and bad. She's like, right. I heard from a previous guy that they didn't fuck that much. So why does that? Yeah. Why and does that John, hurt John? And John never considers the possibility that Yoko is just fucking with him. 
he knows she plays games yeah but i mean may doesn't deny it though she was like whatever i wasn't into that guy but i I guess but he's already convinced and just bleeding out about it (laughs) it's true immediately Uh, yeah i unless yoko was like john you're not having sex with her oh because clearly she's frigid or whatever you know whatever the implication is all right you know you probably can't even get it up yeah if if she went there and just made it all about his like failures or lack of virility or whatever if she was just basically insulting him the whole time and then he kind of turns around and puts it on may it still doesn't really make sense but again well, why, no. why is john like how could you do this to me like right right three how, years ago how in the world does he make that about himself uh, well, and, and also she didn't do anything like what, yeah what is he talking he, about <laughs> i mean john is quite skilled at making things that aren't about him <laughs> okay so whatever shame john feels that this throws on him maybe only makes sense in his little shared bizarro world with yoko which would then make sense that may thought of that quote from yoko that she knew john's deepest fears and maybe that is what gives her the ability to make him believe these insane things and you know the reason why we're telling the story is not because like i don't think it has anything to do with paul we're not suggesting that but we're but it might have something to do with John's sexuality or yeah. at the very least about his masculinity or his virility sure. or whatever you want to say it. And again, we've got numerous quotes from Yoko, like ample evidence of her telling John, I think you're gay when they got together. Um, not to make fun of him um, or Yoko, no. honestly, because she's in a weird situation too. Um, well, of her own creation. Yeah, well... <laughs> This particular incident doesn't reflect great on her because she's fucking with him <laughs> hard. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she's also in this annoying love triangle. Or, you know, at least was yeah. in, you know, 68 about with this guy who won't shut up about this other guy. And, you know. Right. And kind of yeah. remains in that triangle for the rest of the time, to be honest. You could say she's still in it to a certain extent. <laughs> it's in a way. true. Yeah. Maybe less acutely. Right. <laughs> keep the math pun well, let's hope sorry yeah oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh you oh yeah and and by the way just for the sake of clarification the story that may is referring to earlier in 1973 right after john and yoko buy the dakota apartment she recounts a conversation with yoko where yoko tells may about the woman that john had sex with at the party she says he went into a bedroom and fucked a girl while it was in the other room. Everyone knew. And then she says, I did primal therapy with him. I watched him go back to his childhood. I'd know his deepest fears. A little <laughs> ominous. A little ominous. And it freaked May out. And she's like, damn, mm-hmm. bitch. We know that Yoko is implying that she can fuck with him if she wants. Yes. To. Yeah. And that John does stuff sometimes that makes her want to. Right. Um, and that may or may not have been the same party that he yelled. I wish I was back with Paul. So, again, she's got reason to fuck with him now. Yeah. Whatever that shame is. It, uh, it touched majorly. It punched in the face one of his biggest insecurities. 
which is tied up in his sexuality. Right. Um, in some way, whether that is anything, anything at all to do with Paul or even anything to do with his identity as a queer person. Right. We don't know. It's just, it's a big, it's a big deal for him. But we know that that's a soft spot for him. And we also yes. know that being macho is, or not being macho enough or being too soft is also <laughs> yes. um, a, a sore spot with him. Like yeah. he's, he's self-conscious about that, about being too soft. Mm-hmm. Even though he desperately does not want to be self-conscious about that. The irony he is that like that's, secure. that's the most lovable thing. Like that's literally why everybody loves him is because yes. he's so soft and well, vulnerable. And- not everybody. Oh, good point. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> Not the alpha dog, top dog rock god guys. Really? You like literally the thing that brought him the most pain yes. and suffering yes. in his life? That's what you yes. like about him? Okay. That's what you put on the pedestal? The thing that he literally like fought the, his entire life to shake? That tormented him? Okay. Yeah. I don't even know why you're a fan of him, but okay. Sure. <laughs> yes! Right? It's like the guys who, who watch... Breaking Bad or whatever, and it's like they don't get the moral, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, he's so badass. Yeah, exactly. Don Draper, so cool. It's like, well, I yes. <laughs> okay. Anyways, by cool, do you oh. mean irreparably broken? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna tell you one other anecdote here. This is like late 73 back in LA. John and May go see Ann Peebles at some club in LA. They're with Jesse Ed Davis and Jim Keltner and their girlfriends. This is the night of the Kotex on the head. John gets trashed before dinner and he shows up to the troubadour just like blasted out of his head. He starts heckling. He's walking around with the Kotex on his head. He gets back to the house. The guys are being dicks and, you know, messing around. And John hits Jesse over the head with a Coke bottle and he like collapses in in the kitchen and his girlfriend's screaming, you killed him, you killed him. And John's like, no, 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 he's fine. Look, look, he's alive. Ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing to see here. But because they're making such an enormous ruckus, the cops show up, (laughs) guns ablaze at the house. John's afraid of cops, right? And so he's he's hiding and he's like, fuck, I've got some weed in the house. Let's May deal with the cops. Right? <laughs> and after they leave, he goes nutballs and like trashes the apartment. He rips May's necklace off of her neck, which is like a special heirloom from her mom or something. Or something. May panics because she can't control John. Yeah, and there aren't any stewardesses around to intervene. <laughs> to give him more drinks. Yeah. Yeah. So May panics and calls Yoko. And Yoko's like, I don't care. Just call Elliot. Call Elliot Mintz. <laughs> Elliot's like the second handler in chief, you know. Okay. So Elliot comes over. But <laughs> when he shows up, John starts screaming anti-Semitic shit through the door. And Elliot leaves. He's like, fuck this. He just leaves May in there like, good luck, May. <laughs> and then in the morning, of course, as of every morning, John wakes up and he's like, oh, my God. I'm so sorry. I'm so, I'm so sorry. And I don't want Julian to find out about this because Ju- Julian was visiting at that time. Julian and Cynthia were staying at a hotel nearby. So then May says, I got up and made coffee. Then Yoko called. She gave John three explanations for the night's events. 
and John repeated them to me. John had exploded because I had not done my job because Cynthia wanted him back and because he had seen Julian despite the fact that it hurt Yoko because she could not see her daughter Kyoko whom she insisted had been kidnapped by her father Tony Cox. So was this a pick one or was it all of these things came together and created this perfect storm for John to go off or was it like here are three of your options you choose one right pick a card I think it was like it's a composite these are the three reasons and Cynthia says I love you I want you back so he explodes in violence Uh, you know whatever doesn't make any sense but oh oh, yeah like there's no logical no none it does at all yeah no it's just all not John's fault it may have not done her job. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. I tell that story because it's a good example, and there are dozens of those in the book, of how Yoko shapes the narrative, not just for the press and the public, but also for John. Yeah, yeah there's definitely a conversation to be had about how much John and Yoko believe their own press. Yeah, that's true. You know. Because according to May, sometimes John doesn't buy Yoko's bullshit, but he goes along with it to make her happy. And other times he seems to really believe it or at least swallow it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like the incident about throwing the party and inviting Mick Jagger shows that Yoko already has the story of their separation planned out for the public and the press. Yeah. And I think John is not just willing to go along with Yoko's stories. I think he also relies on her to spin things in a way that's good for him and and for them. Yes, he definitely relies on her intellectually to like to strategize and to remember the things that he forgets (laughs) to be, you know, the detail person in the relationship. I mean... A lot of the things he used to rely on Paul for as mm. well. What's your face for? <laughs> <You're>, what? <laughs> just just because it just because as I thought of it, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I don't know. It's just sort of odd. It's like, oh, John, can you not be so codependent? Yeah. yeah. Well, John needs a handler. He needs a handler. That's and that's fair, but he definitely needs a trustworthy, yes, you know, uh, yeah, partner. Pretty. If you have a benign monarch, yeah, then it's okay. Yeah. If not, then there be dragons. But it's weird because I I kind of don't know what to think of the whole divorce thing because it sounds like a threat. Maybe she doesn't think that John's going to go through with it. Maybe she's just trying to fuck with him. Yeah. Well, like, why would Yoko be so scared of a divorce? I mean, I guess unless she she knows how dirty John fought with Cynthia. Forget how dirty John fought against Cynthia. Think of how dirty he fought against Paul. So do you know about the rumor? And it's just a rumor, to be clear, (laughs) that in 1980, when Yoko was contemplating divorce, Mm-hmm. She specifically asked her lawyers to figure out a way that she could divorce John and get more than half of the estate. Mm-mm. Yeah. So she just wanted to make sure it was more than half. Yeah. As a symbolic thing, I assume. Oh, I could see that. It's just like, like a, a power. power. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So maybe it's 
something along those lines. She doesn't think she can get that. And so she doesn't want to do it. If she's no longer John's wife, if she's John Lennon's ex-wife, obviously she loses prestige. She that's the end et cetera, of her, et cetera. That, that is the absolute yeah. end of her. I mean, the, the yeah. only reason that people even let up on her is because he he went back to her. They seem to be happy with the baby and because right. he got murdered. That's it. Because if they had gotten divorced in 1974, she would be thrown out like yesterday's trial. Like she would be persona non grata. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's why I'm like people who talk about Heather Mills and they're like, Paul's so in control of the press and this PR and they turned on her. And I was like, Paul spent all of his capital, like for the five years they were married or whatever. Yes. He spent all of his capital defending her, yes, yelling at the to. press. <laughs> yeah. Yes. They yeah. didn't like her from the get go. And I agree <laughs> that she she didn't get like a fair shake or whatever, but it was not because he was sick in the press mm. on her. No, he w- he wouldn't have needed to. Right. So I'm saying, I mean, and even also, if he like, wanted to, it's unnecessary. How do you think Yoko would have been hit? Like if John and Yoko oh, divorced yeah. and he was like done with that bitch, Yoko yeah. would be in there telling the judge, <laughs> well, he beat a baby out of me, first of all. Yeah. I mean, just she would have so many dirty <sighs> things to say about him yeah. and everyone would hate her. Like everybody in music would consider her. Yes. The garbage person who took down a great man so much so, yeah. so that he lost his own band and she was the worst thing that's ever happened in rock and roll like yeah it would be real fucking bad so it would, it would have been a bloodbath for sure absolutely so yeah she doesn't want she doesn't want to divorce yeah because if you pull a knife on yoko i mean watch out yeah yeah, we've spent a lot of this, a lot of the series <laughs> detailing how she is not afraid to really fuck with him. So she burned him down for sure. And she knows everything. Well, that's the other thing is we know that she knows everything. Everything. Yeah. She could rip him to pieces. Yeah. I mean, he could do the same. But it doesn't matter because nobody likes her anyway. Well, yeah. I guess nobody would defend her anyway. Are we are we talking about why John wouldn't want a divorce right now, or why Yoko wouldn't? Yeah, I mean, I guess either or. Yeah, John has a lot to lose, but what I'm saying is like Yoko has way more to lose in a way because no matter how much money she gets, no one will ever speak to her ever again. Mm-hmm. If she turns on John forget it forget it she has zero yeah. friends yeah. no one is coming to her side everybody's no. on john's side as evidenced by the fact that when he separates from her everybody's like come on back john opens their arms absolutely we're, we're still yeah. friends it's all good uh-huh. we're gonna act like that should never happen yep so he wouldn't have any problem and i'm sure she's kind of sweating that too yeah well, any problem except for what you were talking about, about what she might say to the papers, to a judge, whatever. Not that the public would be it wouldn't too look, sympathetic, probably. Yeah. They'd it still be on John's side. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It wouldn't look it wouldn't be good for that to come out. But look, think of all the things that we already know about John that are awful. And he still has yeah. a like, oh, cult like yes. following. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> 
the things that we've known and that also are actually being talked about now <laughs> and still still he has the airport named after him right he's not canceled no no so no matter what power yoko may have over john in terms of mind games or inflicting psychological damage john has the power of charisma <laughs> being like <laughs> he, he he's beloved and the public will always take his side no matter how he treats yoko and yoko has got to know that absolutely yeah i mean john can get another wife but if Yoko <laughs> divorces John, then she loses access to the Beatles circle and Rolling Stone. And, you know, I mean, she becomes persona non grata in the rock world. Yeah. Especially if John decides to ensure that that happens. Exactly. I think we sometimes give short shrift to how manipulative he can be and how like. I, I absolutely agree. Yes. Yeah. We give him a pass for a right. lot of shit. For calculating, yeah. for for being like yes. calculatedly cruel, but I think yes. he definitely can be like he can and maneuvering. Yeah, he's not just living in the moment twenty four seven. No, <laughs> agree. Okay, so back to the uh, timeline, real quick. We're gonna we're almost at the point where Yoko goes to see Paul. Okay, <laughs> so John and Yoko. This is after the they go talk to the lawyers, and Yoko asks for a divorce. So John and May return to L.A. in late February to work on John's album. Yoko calls John. David Spinoza is a guitarist that Yoko has been like flirting with for the last year. She goes, David Spinoza finally fucked me, and it was great. <laughs> And John's like, terrific, great for you. This is the same David Spinoza who got himself kicked off the Ram recordings because he pinched Paul's butt, right? <laughs> that would be the same guy, yeah. Yeah, that would be the, okay, same guy. Oh my God, what a weird place in Beatle history he has. <laughs> a really interesting, like, crossover. <laughs> oh boy. So good old David... I guess he fucked, <laughs> he fucked Yoko and she was like, it was epic. <laughs> and John's like, fantastic. And then he hangs up the phone and tells May, like, isn't that great? I'm so glad. I was starting to think she'd never get a good fuck, you know. And May's like, <sighs> whatever, John. <laughs> it's not even with you. Meanwhile, John can't stand the fact that May had a boyfriend three years ago. <laughs> but he's super in favor yeah. of his current wife boning some guy. I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. <laughs> don't even know. Yeah. So soon after that is when John gets drunk at the Troubadour and heckles Tommy Smothers. And it's that evening that he's photographed with May. You know that picture of them in the club where they're kissing? <laughs> yes. That's that's from that night. He was sitting there heckling <laughs> the Smothers brothers. And then he turns around to May and says, you know, I love you, right? I love you, May. And then they take the picture. (laughs) And that gets printed in the paper and Yoko freaks out, right? She's furious and you can see why. Oh, for sure. Whatever their private arrangement is, you know, is one thing, but now it's in the paper and everybody sees her husband kissing some hot young thing in a club. (laughs) <laughs> Which was super not 
part of the deal for this arrangement. <laughs> exactly. Like, she did not sign up for that to be publicly embarrassed or shown up or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. So now it's game on. And this is the point she goes to London. Based on our research, we believe this is the point where she goes to visit Paul in London. Thanks for listening to Another Kind of Mind. Next time in our second installment of Pizza and Fairy Tales, we'll follow Yoko to London, where she visits Paul and asks him for a surprising favor. From there, it's off to L.A. and the infamous Toot and Snore Jam Session, which is the first time Paul and John have come face to face in years. Or is it? Hmm. Also, also on, on the, the docket. docket. <laughs> are John's final performance at Madison Square Garden, the Beatles' final meeting as the Beatles. And finally, John and Paul's mutual excitement and trepidation as the rekindling of their friendship continues into 1975. Peace. Thank you for listening. Thanks for... <laughs> <laughs>